Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 to 20 this morning. And we also have the text printed for you in the order of worship. You can refer to that. Uh, We get to talk about the theme of opposition this morning. Uh, It is going to be a tale of drama and backstabbing and betrayal and angry mobs and imprisonment and the whole works uh, you can look forward to. Uh, Before we get that, let me just remind us where we are in this letter to set some context before we jump in. We looked last week at the first section in Paul's letter to the Philippian church that he had planted, and he is writing to them from prison, as they have, him, they have been supporting him in his ministry, and yet he has been in prison for preaching the gospel. Um, and so this is a situation of fear and anxiety for this church who is also already facing many other situations of adversity. And he is encouraging them to remember the work of God, what he had done in them in the past, But also more than that, that the work that God had started before, he is faithful to carry through all the way until the end. And so this Philippian church has great reason to be thankful and to have hope, even in the middle of the anxiety and adversity they are currently facing. And then that brings us to this morning where we get to look more specifically at some of the trials that Paul is facing. So let's go to our text and I'll read it and then we'll jump in. This is Philippians 1, verses 12 to 20. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start out uh, as we jump in with a question, and that is, What would motivate you to continue with something in the face of opposition? Uh, Maybe this is a plan or a goal you have or a relationship, uh, something that's really important to you. What would it take if you were to face opposition in that endeavor uh, to persevere, to let it roll off your back and to take it uh, in order that you might continue what you're doing? And we all might answer that question differently. We're all different. Some of us hate opposition or any kind of conflict. Some of us seem to live for it and are energized by it. But we all have a limit. um, And it is just an incredibly discouraging thing to feel strongly about something and to love something and yet have somebody work directly against you. So it feels like you're going nowhere, uh, that the good that you're doing is being undone. 
And we're talking, when I say opposition throughout here, I'm not talking about just disagreement. Disagreement can be a very good thing um, as we work together, uh, to come together in relationship and in work. This is more about working against others, to have an opponent and that type of thing. And what we see in this passage, we see two things that are very familiar, or one thing that is very familiar and one thing that is very unfamiliar. And what is familiar is that Paul is faced by lots and lots of opposition. He's facing opposition from his Jewish opponents who have had him locked up in prison, and he is facing opposition um, from his Christian opponents through rivalries. It's everywhere. And this is something I think that we can relate to a lot. Uh, We might know what it is like to have somebody that just really doesn't like us, uh, that is against everything that we're about, that is undermining or cutting, and it seems like whatever we do uh, is not good enough. We have an opponent in that way who just wants to see us fall. But for most of us, it's probably a little bit more indirect as it comes in the form of rivalries, even rivalries of people on the same team. It's just when there's a community of people and there's a little bit of feeling or a perception of disrespect, that somebody is disrespectful towards us, it starts something inside of us. And when we were uh, moving on the same page, then there's resentment and there's a working against one another. When there's a need to be a central figure, a helper to be needed for our own uh, knowledge or expertise to be trusted and it isn't, rivalries start. A little fear of change in a community culture, a little disagreement about emphasis and strategy, priority and style. And we have this situation where there are rivalries developed, where we work against each other, we feel frustration, we feel a sense of shame when others seemingly get the best of us, or maybe we even feel a sense of rejoicing when we get the best of somebody else. Opposition is all around us. It is a very difficult thing, and it is something worthwhile talking about even when we are in this quarantine situation. If it's not, though it's not directly about what we're facing, but this goes on all the time, Um, We can make an application of this from general hardship, but even more specifically is when things are really stressful is when this kind of thing comes out and we need to think about it seriously. But the thing that is unfamiliar in here is Paul's response. And that is when Paul is faced by all of this opposition around him, his response is that he is rejoicing still in God's work, even when his opponents are getting the best of him. And it seems like his efforts are being thwarted at every turn. And we need to ask ourselves, how in the world does he do that? How can he continue in joy despite the opposition that he faces in his life? And that's what I want us to ask and consider here. And there's two things, there's two points that I want to make about this passage. The first is that joy comes when Christ's servants are honoring Christ uh, instead of themselves. When Christ is actually the object of our honor and our delight uh, rather than us. And I want to put the Bible to the side just for a second, if I can do that in a sermon, and talk about the Tiger King instead. Uh, If you've gotten onto the Tiger King bandwagon, uh, you are just like everybody else these days. Um, It is not a show I recommend. Uh, It is truly terrible in so many ways. It is a story about two people who just despise each other 
and who have a rivalry over keeping tigers. One wants to keep them, uh, who loves them very much, and another lady wants him to be not allowed to keep them. And it is just a downward spiral of rivalry and backstabbing and truly terrible stuff. Uh, but since you probably have seen it anyways, it illustrates this point, like despite all the opposition they face from each other, they are able to persevere and they do persevere to extreme lengths. Why? Because they love these tigers. Both of them do in very separate ways. There's something that has nothing to do with them, that they, they have an object of love for them being this tiger. And they're actually laboring on behalf of the tigers. So whatever opposition they face, they're willing to take it because it's like they're doing this out of protection and love for the thing that they love most. Now put Tiger King to the side and let's bring Paul back into the forefront here. And I think we notice a similar thing. And that when you look at this passage, these two situations that he is facing, he is facing great opposition from his Jewish opponents and he has been put in prison. And yet how does he respond to this? He's saying that his imprisonment has actually served. It is giving him a new place to preach the gospel and that he has been brought right in the heart. Uh, He is of Rome. He's uh, probably Rome. Um, He's preaching to the imperial guards, like really important people, the gospel. He's been given a new opportunity. And despite that, uh, the others, his other brothers, his other partners in the gospel have actually been emboldened to speak without fear. Seeing that Paul has been in prison, they're actually a little bit less afraid of that themselves, and they are encouraged, and so they press on. And so what does Paul say? He has joy over this, because the, the, the opposition that he is taking in himself, it doesn't matter into as much, because the one he truly honors, the true object of his love, is being honored, and that Christ is being honored. He is being proclaimed even here. And the same thing happens in this other situation where there are other Christians, uh, and they probably are Christians because he says that they're preaching Christ, so these are not necessarily doctrinal opponents. But they're people who are probably also in ministry, and because of some kind of selfish ambition, some kind of desire for status or influence or whatever those things that are probably very familiar to us, that they feel a sense of rivalry with Paul. And now that Paul is in prison, they're actually using that to put him down. They're saying that, you know, now uh, they can preach Christ in the way that they want, and they are more important. And they're actually willing to afflict uh, their brother in this way. And how does Paul respond to that? He says, which is, you know, if we think about this emotionally, it's just bizarre. Like he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So once again, he is taking joy. He is willing to take these punches on himself because the thing he loves most, Christ, is actually being honored. And all of it makes it worthwhile if that is the case. And we might think that Paul is just some spiritual superhuman and he's an apostle and all that, but we have to remember he is a person with flesh and blood just like the the rest of us, just like you and me. He has the same heart. He has the same flesh and bones. He is a real person. And this, in the first place, this is a really challenging point for us to think about, is that like Paul, our joy, it is most full 
when Christ is actually the one object of our affection and our love. He is the one that we honor most. And when that, is, when that happens, then all of these other things we might face, all of these other obstacles, this opposition that we might face ourselves, it just doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't have as much to do with us. It has to do with Him. It becomes a labor of love that focuses all of our efforts on something good. It is a working on His behalf um, and honoring of Christ outside of ourselves. And what this does for it, on the first place, I want us to notice, you know, let, even though this is bizarre, and we're going to talk about that in a second, how freeing would this be? How freeing would it be to have this kind of affection for one person so that whenever somebody opposes you, whenever somebody criticizes you, is working against, to where it just doesn't matter, where you're free, where the goodness that you hope for is guaranteed to come forth, And just sit in that for a little while. Just think about what that would be like uh, to experience that kind of freedom. But in the second place, there's a challenge of this too, is that sometimes we have to ask ourselves, there are times we need to ask the question, not has Christ indeed been faithful to us, even in our present hardship. There are times we need to ask what we truly want. What is the true object of our desire? Because how we answer that question is going to greatly impact how we view Christ and His faithfulness and what He has actually done for us. It it causes us to see things um, that we would not be able to see otherwise, how He is moving um, and even some dark things in our own hearts. So in that point, Christ's servants have the most joy when Christ is actually the object of our affections, when He is the one that we most honor. And I think we need to say that is an incredibly challenging thing to to digest. And I think for us the problem is it's not that we don't know that. It's not that we don't have an object to love, because we do. We have Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've you've professed Christ and you've put your hope and trust in Him and in, in many ways love Him. The problem is that our love is very, very weak. And that when the opposition comes, when that kind of hardship comes, then those voices that come from that, it is so discouraging, it is so overwhelming that they speak so much louder. And our love for Jesus, if we're brutally honest, it often crumbles in the face of it. So we also have, we have to ask not only, you know, what does Paul do in order to have his joy? We have to ask, how in the world can Paul do this? Can he have this kind of affection? And to answer that, we have to look, put Paul to the side and notice not what he is doing, but at what Jesus is doing behind the scenes. So what is Christ doing? In the first place, we get this wonderful display of his power, of how he is able to use even these bad situations of imprisonment and rivalry, even in the church, to accomplish good ends. It's like even the things that seem like they are the most destructive, that Christ is able to use them so they actually contribute to the story rather than taking away from the story uh, that he is working. And that's really comforting in a lot of ways. It's really good news. But even there, if we were to stop there, what we would get is a kind of MacGyver type God who we face these random uh, situations and hardships, and yet God is able to twist it in some way, to use a shoelace and a piece of gum, and presto, 
uh, to bring something good out of it. And that is not exactly the picture of God that we get here from Paul. If we zoom out and we think about what he is doing with Paul's, everything that he has done here, even though it has seemed like a great hardship and was hard for Paul in many ways, these are actually tools that God has used, what it seems like intentionally, to actually work this story through. And that Paul, who is the betrayer of Christians, was bestowed grace upon and was put right in the middle of Christ's work. And he was sent into prison and he was moved from prison to prison in prison in front of authority, 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 and moved right into the heart of the highest authorities in Rome so that he could preach the gospel. And there's a way that Paul is actually being honored by Jesus in the way that he is moving them, even through his suffering. That God is actually using his suffering, not as accidents, but right in the middle of his plan and doing good to Paul uh, in spreading the gospel and using him in his story in this way. And if that sounds familiar to you, of a way that God would sometimes work, it should. And it's familiar, especially this Sunday, as we are celebrating Palm Sunday, when we think about uh, what this day commemorates. Because what we are celebrating today is when Jesus marched into, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, in the first place to great joy and to crowds uh, who loved him but who would turn on him very, very quickly. By doing this, he is inciting the ire and the jealousy of the Jewish leaders who can't stand the influence that he has and is destroying of their traditions and way of life. And so what Jesus is actually doing is he is marching to his death. And this is such an essential part of the plan of what God has done in Trinitarian form, Father, Son, and Spirit, as he has sent his Son to his death to experience the greatest opposition and the greatest humiliation that he could experience. experience. And yet, as Paul's going to say in 2.9, that he's doing this in a paradoxical way. He is honoring Jesus. That through doing this, he is raising him up as the highest authority of all. And that through his suffering, he is actually honoring his son and bestowing honor upon him that is more than ever any other name. He goes into the city, he's hailed as king, but in reality, he came to die. But from God's plan, he went in to die, and as such, he actually became the highest king. And so what is happening here for Paul, in his own life, his own life, that that work of Jesus is permeating into him, that he has been adopted, he has been stuck onto Christ in his union with Christ, and his life is now defined by Christ's life. That this honor that God was willing to bestow upon Christ, he is actually now bestowing on Paul as a free gift. The persecutor of Christians, the one who says, I'm the chiefest sinner, he has been brought near. And through, even though he is experiencing these times of great trial, of great opposition, we see the hand of God actually working to honor Paul. He is not just getting him out of the situation, but in using him in his plan, he is actually doing all of this out of love. He is making something great out of Paul's life and is defined by Christ's life as well. And what does this mean for us? That we are not Paul and we are certainly not Jesus. 
But the good news of the gospel is that our older brother Jesus, who went ahead of us, who walked this road, who experienced shame, who took the opposition on himself in his own flesh for us, he then turns around and he gives that to us as a free gift. That our lives are no longer defined by ourselves. When God looks at us, he does no longer looks at us as ourself, but he looks at us with the honor of Jesus. The one he is proud of, the one that he is willingly and joyously bestowing honor on us because of Jesus. And that radically changes how we view the situations that we face in our own life, whether they are uh, opposition or general hardship that we are under, that we have this reassurance that God, whereas our joy is most full when we honor God, he is showing us also that the exact reverse of that is true as well. That Christ rejoices to honor you. And he rejoices to work that out in your life. So whatever the hardship may be, that he would actually use them to bring honor through Christ to you. He is moving to you out of love. And so as we face uh, this, these hardships or these oppositions in any way, whether they be direct or indirect, disorienting, fearful, or whatever, what we are then able to do is to open our heart to God, to return to Him, to see what He has given to us, not on our own strength, but as receiving the free gift of honor we have from Jesus. And so that in the face of these things, we actually might enjoy what God has given and be thankful for that. Be thankful that we have a Father that loves us to this degree, that He would use every situation in our lives to honor us, because this is what He has done with Jesus. And see what we did there? We've ended with joy. As this is the seed of how it starts, to enjoy the good gift uh, that God has given through His Jesus who marched that road into Jerusalem for us. And that's what I hope for every one of us, even in the season, that we would enjoy Christ's gift and that joy uh, would spread outside of us, even to others. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he did uh, what we could not do. Thank you for the overwhelming gift of goodness of this uh, story of honor that you have brought us into, even though we don't deserve it. We pray you would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we truly would be overwhelmed with the joy of that, and that we would love to be with you and what you are doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.